Donald Hoffman is a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Irvine. His research on perception, evolution, and consciousness received the Troland Award of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the Rustam Roy Award of the Chopra Foundation. He is the author of the book, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Donald Hoffman, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much, Mia. Thank you for your kind invitation. So how far have you gone into isolating your own senses in terms of sensory deprivation to try to understand your primary senses and how they operate in concert with each other and in isolation and in concert with the consciousness of others? Well, there's different ways you could do that. You could go into sensory deprivation tanks and isolate completely. There's interesting research on that, that people go into very interesting states, detaching from their bodies and so forth. I haven't done that myself, but that's an interesting literature. I do spend time in meditation uh, on a daily basis and letting go of thoughts and letting go of watching the thoughts, watching the feelings and so forth. In when I do that, I do get a sense of backing away from my normal perspective on reality. Normally we feel immersed in space and time and objects and the normal activities of life, but in meditation and interior silence begin to step back and be able to look at that, be able to look at objects in space and time, and also look at my thoughts and emotions instead of being identified with those thoughts and emotions. So I think that's an extremely valuable activity or lack of activity, because in some sense you're letting go of activity. So you're being just the silent and quiet watcher. And so I see it as a very healing kind of process. It, it helps you to get perspective, to question things that you automatically assume are true and believe. And I think it's also restful to the body to go into a state of interior silence and, and step away from just identifying with thoughts and emotions and being absorbed in the reports of the senses, getting the space from it. It's much like if you're playing a virtual reality game, you have on a headset and body suit and you actually are viscerally responding to all the things that are happening. You actually feel like you're going to get hurt and so forth. And sometimes it's, it's good to step back and realize, hey, oh, look, I've just got a headset on and I'm not someone inside the game. In some sense, the game is inside me. I've always wanted to be able to take the time to isolate the different senses to see what it would be like to go through the world mute or blind or in a different physical state, because I know that you're, of course, also interested not just in our senses and our consciousness, but the consciousness of animals. I've never been able to find the time to do that yet. Yes, absolutely. Different animals have completely different senses. Some will perceive in ultraviolet or infrared, for example, or they can perceive magnetic or electric fields that we can't perceive. Also polarization of light, some birds and perhaps other animals can perceive polarization of light using quantum mechanical kinds of receptors, apparently in their eyes, it's truly stunning stuff. So yeah, their sensory worlds are utterly different from ours. And it is interesting to play with the senses. And one way is to deprive them. Another way, a colleague of mine spent time trying to immerse people in four dimensional virtual worlds. So they had to play virtual reality games in four dimensions and see if you could learn to actually perceive in four dimensions. So could we extend our perceptions to a four-dimensional space instead of just a three-dimensional spatial world? So it's interesting to both extend 
and also to reduce each of the senses and see what the result is on ourselves. It is easy for us to think that the way we perceive the world is the canonically right way to do it. And once we see the variety of senses uh, along animals and nature and, and even plants, they have their own interesting sensory systems. They, they can see it and perceive enough of the world. They can do classical conditioning, for example. Yeah, it's helpful. Also, I'd just say in, in the case of humans, on the extension side, there are some women who have more dimensions of color perception than the rest of us. So most of us have only three color receptors. We could think of them as red, green, and blue, or long, medium, and short wavelength photoreceptors. These women have kinds of photoreceptors. They're called tetrafems. And work by Kimberly Jamison and others suggests strongly that these women have an extra dimension of color experience that the rest of us can't even imagine. If I had asked you to imagine a new color that you've never seen before, drive concretely, what imagine a specific new color that you've never seen before. No, nothing happens, right? It's just, I can't imagine a new one. But these women are perceiving these colors, apparently, that the rest of us can't even imagine. So it's interesting that we think that the way we perceive the world is just what everybody else is perceiving, and that's very unlikely. Yes, and on that point of animals, I mean, just to throw some other people's perspectives on it, I've sometimes been surprised by people feeling that animals didn't have a language or a grammar. I was speaking to the founder of Peter Ingrid Newkirk, and the way she expresses it is you just have to look in their eyes to know there's a person there. And another conversation had with Amy Vitali, and I thought, because I thought they would know so much more than me about this. And she's the wildlife photographer. She's photographed in over 100 countries. And I asked, what does she know about the language of animals, the different languages, I imagine? And she's described it as all one language. Really? That there's a common language among animals? That they can understand each other, she says? Not really, but I believe she meant the way she could communicate with them was in one way. And it, oh, I see. I'm, I'm not really quite sure, but it surprised me that answer as someone who's been in the wild in so many places. Yes, she may feel a compassion and a connection from her extensive dealings with the animals that, that maybe the rest of us wouldn't immediately have because we don't have that quite a, a, an extensive experience with them. And so what have your explorations of spirituality or the arts taught you about consciousness and higher level thinking? Consciousness is something that I've been really studying quite a bit in my research and also personally. And it's also now something that uh, cognitive scientists more generally are starting to study more often as well for the last, say, 30 years, more quite intensely, maybe 40 years for some. The dominant view of many cognitive scientists, I would say, is that consciousness is something that brains create. So most of the processes in our brains are proceeding without any conscious content. So they're unconscious processes, but a small amount of our brain processes are somehow experiences. And the standard view, I think, is that it's a, a fairly recent, late evolutionary process that led to the experience of, of conscious experiences in humans and other animals and perhaps other creatures more generally. My view is different. I think that the standard view that consciousness is a product of brains isn't correct because I think that our best physical theories tell us that space and time are not fundamental. Space-time is doomed. So that's on the physics side. Physicists are saying that space-time is not fundamental for very principled reasons, falling out of Einstein's theory of gravity and quantum field theory. And then there are results from evolution of natural selection that my colleagues and I have, have also gotten that indicate on evolutionary grounds that space and time and objects cannot be fundamental. They're more like a user interface. Evolution 
shaped our senses to be more like a user interface and not a window on reality. So in that case, our perception of objects in space and time is not a perception of the truth. It's a perception of icons in an interface that we evolved by natural selection. And so those icons only exist when we create them. We, we create them on the fly as we need them, just like in virtual reality, the things that you see in virtual reality. I see a car when I turn my headset that way, and I see the car that I create. When I turn my headset that way, the car disappears. It only is there when I create it. And so the same thing is true of neurons and brains. They exist when we look and they don't exist when we don't. So they're not even there to create our conscious experiences. So consciousness then I'm thinking of as fundamental. So instead of being a late byproduct of evolution, rather that evolution itself and physics itself is telling us that space-time cannot be fundamental. It's, it's doomed as a fundamental concept. And physicists are looking for deeper structures and deeper theories beyond space-time. And that's what my team and I are looking at as well. We're proposing that a mathematical model of consciousness per se could be a more fundamental framework than space and time. And that more fundamental framework could give rise to space and time. So I'm thinking about consciousness as really the fundamental nature of reality. And the math that we're doing suggests that there is a variety of what we call conscious agents, but that ultimately Anytime conscious agents interact, they form a new, deeper conscious agent. And so there is, in some sense, maybe just one conscious agent, but an incredibly complex conscious agent. So in that sense, we're all part of consciousness and we're all expressions, maybe projections of, of a deeper consciousness. Maybe consciousness putting on its own virtual reality headset to explore its potential, its possibilities. And so that, that's one idea about what consciousness is up to and why we're here in space and time. We are all separate consciousnesses, but that are just projections of a deeper consciousness. And consciousness is just finding all the varieties of experiences that it could have and, and all of its, you know, exploring its own structure and, and getting to know itself. Like the Oracle of Delphi inscription on the temple said, know thyself. And maybe that's what consciousness is up to, is to, to know thyself. Yes. And you speak about a deeper underlying one consciousness or... If you should try to think about an averaging out, I feel for perfectly comfortable that we all have different consciousnesses and that there are all many different truths. And I actually don't believe there can be one truth. So in fact, no description that we could give of the truth can ever be it. And this is, it turns out that this is a theorem from Kurt Gödel, 1930, 1931 or so. He proved that if you have any mathematical system a formal system where you have a finite set of axioms and then all the things that you could prove from those axioms. And if that system is sophisticated enough, powerful enough to entail all the axioms or, or the, the theorems of arithmetic, then he showed that there will always be statements that you can see are true, but cannot be proven within that finite set of axioms that you have. And so that's interesting. These are unprovable truths. So this is a truth that transcends your mathematical framework. So you might say, well, okay, I'll just take that truth that transcends my mathematical framework. I'll add it in to my framework. So now it's part of my basic assumptions. Then Gödel says, then I'll show you another truth that can't be proven even with your new axiom system. And so this goes on ad infinitum. And what that means is that any conceptual notion that we have will only scratch the surface of the whole realm of truths. There's this, in some sense, an infinite intelligence of truth that completely transcends, in principle transcends, any description, any finite description 
that we can give a finite in the sense that we're, we start with a finite set of axioms and are developing based on certain rules, the implications of those axioms. So in that sense, there is no one description of truth because truth, we now know we have a theorem that says that no description of truth is it because every description that we can give has a finite axiomatization and it, you, Gödel's incompleteness theorem therefore says, oh, there'll be truths that completely transcend anything that you could derive from your axioms that you could explain from your assumptions. So I agree. And it's not just mathematics. I think it's also in scientific. These are the most precise theories that people come up with and the ones that we try to test. And scientific theories also have the same flavor. I think it comes deeply from Gödel's incompleteness theorem, but you could see it independently in another way that scientific theories say, grant me these assumptions. And you have a few assumptions that you ask people to grant you. And then you say, I'll explain all this neat stuff. If you, so grant me these assumptions, I'll explain all this other good stuff. And that's the way scientific theories always go. They always have assumptions and then they explain other things. Now you might say, I can, of course, come up with a deeper theory that explains the assumptions of your theory. And that's great. But then your new theory has its own assumptions. And so this is a never ending cycle of perhaps deeper and deeper theories with deeper assumptions. And so I agree with you that we should hold what we call truth um, carefully, that we should not be dogmatic. Dogmatism, in some sense, is the biggest obstacle here, because what we're seeing is that truth is, a, in some sense, a pathless land. And so anything that we state in either scientific or religious frameworks, spiritual frameworks, will always be only a partial description and will maybe give us some pointers that are good on truth. It will also miss other things that, that are really important. On, on the other hand, it's not that anything goes either. Just making up anything that I want to is not appropriate either. So there are, there are certain things that we know are just nonsense and, or that are provably false, given all the evidence that we've had so far. One plus one does not equal three. There are things that we know are just flat out false. So it's interesting. It's not all cut and dried. And science is part of the process of the fun of exploring using conceptual tools, this endless truth. But on a spiritual side, another way to explore the truth is if we are in fact ourselves not distinct from consciousness, if consciousness is the fundamental reality and we're not distinct from that, then we can explore the truth by just being the truth. And that's what sitting in silence and meditation is in part about. Letting go, the reason to let go of the conceptual system completely, to let go of your senses and everything, is to let go of what we know can never fully plumb the depths of who we are. So we let go of all these things and just be ourselves beyond any thought, beyond any concepts. And some deeper knowing occurs that we can't really describe because it transcends description. But out of that, when you come back into your conceptual system, you can often bring back beautiful ideas that can be transformed into concrete concepts that you could then use for growth in spiritual or scientific endeavors. It's very beautifully expressed. And I think that your quest or your search, even the search is the point because it will always, and they say it in many traditions, but in the great Tao, the moment we seek it and we think we have arrived at it, it disappears. But that's what's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And I think it's beautiful that what the spiritual traditions have known intuitively for centuries or millennia 
they've known that space and time, or they've proposed that space and time are not fundamental, that there's a reality that's much deeper than space, time, and physical objects. And they've proposed in the deepest aspects of these traditions that anything that you say about the truth is only a pointer, it's not the truth itself. And so you shouldn't be attached to any particular pointers. Now, of course, in many cases, we see a, a sad history of followers becoming dogmatic about pointers. And my pointer from my group is different from the pointers used by your group. And we fight and we you know, even kill each other and so forth over religious pointers. And that misses the deep point that the was the origin of the deep insights of the various religious traditions, which I think are all pointing in the same direction, which is what you said, that the truth transcends any particular description. It's perfectly fine and worthwhile and helpful to try different pointers, to try different descriptions, and to learn from them uh, something about who we are as conscious beings and a shared consciousness, as long as we don't take it as the final word, as long as we're not uh, uh, so tied to it that we then begin to use it as something that we might hold against other people. You don't believe the same thing I do. You don't see the world the way I do. Then you're wrong and I need to fight you or whatever it might be. That's the wrong way to use it. The, the right way to use it is, as you said, the endless exploration and learning from the different traditions. And again, when I learn from different traditions, it's not, I'm not saying that they have the final word. We've each felt different parts of the elephant. They felt the tail. I felt the leg. I'm very interested to hear what the tail is like, and maybe they'd be interested to hear what the leg is like, but that's only part of the whole thing and it's not the whole thing. And so there's a humility. I think if we have the attitude of open inquisitiveness, which may be what uh, Jesus was saying, that uh, unless you become as a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. If we don't have that kind of open inquisitiveness and openness to all sorts of interesting new things, we can't ever enjoy what we're really about, which is the endless exploration, our shared possibilities. I was actually thinking a lot about this as I read your book, The Case Against Reality, because there's a sort of old sci-fi concept of the multiverse where everything that could ever happen has happened in yes. some other way of being to the point that even fictional universes might be dreamt into existence. There was a book I read a while back where Caliban of Shakespeare's The Tempest invaded Earth. And just thinking about consciousness as this coin of the realm, the most important thing, then what follows is what does imagination, what can seeing things for ourselves that aren't quote unquote there do for us? So the idea of the multiverse is, as you all know, is a pretty big idea in physics right now. Many physicists are thinking about interpreting quantum theory in terms of a multiverse or a many worlds interpretation. Max Tegmark, for example, has the idea that there's what he calls a level four multiverse. He thinks that mathematics is fundamental. So the fundamental reality is just mathematics. And in some sense, Gödel's incompleteness theorem says that there's endless mathematics. There's no end to mathematical exploration. And so that's Tegmark's multiverse. Whatever is mathematically possible is actual. So all the mathematics that we've never even explored because, well, no matter how much we explore, we've only begun, right? In principle, we could explore for trillions of years. We will have only scratched the surface, if that. So this multiverse truly transcends our concrete imagination. But I take a different view. I like this multiverse idea, but completely different from the way the physicists are thinking about it. Yes, we see from Gödel that there's this unlimited variety of mathematical structures. And if consciousness is all there is, if consciousness is fundamental and that's all that there is, 
then the only thing that mathematical structure could be about is about the possible varieties of consciousness and its, and its experiences. So in, in that case, there could be a multiverse of all the possible varieties of conscious structures and experiences that consciousness can, in principle, endlessly explore. And maybe that's what it's all about. It's the endless exploration of the literal endless variety of possibilities of consciousness. So the difference between Tegmark's view and this view is that Tegmark takes mathematics to be the fundamental reality. I'm taking consciousness to be the fundamental reality. And mathematics is more like the bones of the living organism of consciousness. It's not the whole thing. It's the bones. You need bones provide our body with structure, but it's, we're not just bones. We're far more than that. So that's just an analogy. I think that there's something really deep there that I don't understand on the relationship between mathematics and consciousness. I mean, so the bones and organism metaphor, when I say that, I'm not wanting anybody to say, oh, okay, there, there we have it. We know what it is. No, no. My attitude is that's a metaphor that needs to be really unpacked. What is the deep relationship between consciousness and mathematics? That will probably be a topic that we'll endlessly be understanding and learning by pursuing it. So I, I want to have no dogmatic attitude here about anything I say. These are mere pointers to endless exploration. Hi, I'm Eric Krausen. I recently read a news story about how the bankruptcy of a biotech company left several hundred blind people who had received biotic implants to restore their vision stuck with hardware that couldn't be removed or upgraded, doomed to break down, all because the company chose to declare their work obsolete and merge with another company. Two emotions hit me at once. First, there was the shock of, oh my God, that's terribly cruel. And then the surprise of, wait, bionic eyes already exist outside a lab? How about that? We don't see the future coming until it hits us. That's why today I'd like to talk about brain computer interfaces, linking meat to machine, and what that would mean for the future of the recognizable self. It's old news that Elon Musk has poured another hefty sum into a company called Neuralink, which promises brain-computer interfaces that will heal the paralyzed and eventually enhance our intelligence in some vaguely defined way so as to help us compete with the malevolent AI that Musk and others think are going to assault humanity any day now. I say vaguely because really, what is intelligence? Pattern recognition? Mathematical ability? Problem-solving? Creativity? Neuroscientists can activate and deactivate different parts of the brain with ever-increasing fidelity through magnetic resonance and optogenetic activation. But can they really enhance a property of the brain that affects the exabytes of neural connections we already have? Something so vast and comprehensive? Or maybe we'll just be able to drive Teslas with our minds. Or maybe our minds will be strip mined for advertisers to exploit even more than they already do. Often I feel as though technology advances not because it will improve our lives, but because someone else decided we need X or Y in our lives to benefit them. The subject is told what to demand, not the other way around. But Donald Hoffman's way of thinking about consciousness in the brain opened up a new way of seeing this problem for me. For him, consciousness is not about the brain. Really, consciousness is not about anything. It's the most important thing in the universe. The universe we perceive is an evolutionarily honed simulation of a far more ethereal and quantumly unstable reality, sharpened to its most useful point. Even brains themselves are symbols and icons in a user interface that represent consciousness, but do not embody it. Later on in this interview, Hoffman talks about how most of our thoughts are automatic and dysfunctional, driven by evolutionary triggers, rather than truly representing us. 
discover who we are as conscious beings in the world, we need to stop overthinking our universes into existence. Meditation and sensory deprivation, detaching from our senses and our thoughts, are ways to do this that can help us toward that discovery. So whether or not a machine can be connected to the brain is irrelevant then, because all that work doesn't really manipulate consciousness proper. That enigmatic universe-defining power that exists outside of thought alone. I feel that's a good thing. We're not machines. And we don't need to be. Now, back to the interview. Indeed, endless exploration. And in terms of the way you perceive the world, because I think one of the very important things to do, though, if we can take the time, but when we first begin to know someone, is to understand which of their senses are they most nested in. For you, what is that? Which of my senses am I most seated in, for example? I may probably be mostly visual. I tend to be a visual person. And although, which is interesting, I have very poor visual memory. So I'm very visual, but I have a hard time making any concrete visualizations of even my own face, for example. So I'm a very poor imager in that respect. But I can visualize abstract relationships pretty well, which is interesting. So I have a hard time with concrete visualization, but I'm better with abstract visualization. I have a good auditory memory, but I, I'm not primarily auditory. But I tend to avoid listening to too much music because my memory is so good, it goes through my head repeatedly. And I avoid that. So I would say that when I'm learning to be more in my body, so to be more somatosensory, I have was detached from that most of my life, but the meditation process has helped me to be more in touch with being in my body and being aware of the body and aware of the breath and so forth, things that, that I tend to ignore before. So I'm trying to get a balance, being not just visual and not just out there trying to achieve things, but also just instead of doing, also just being in my body being content to just sit and relax and not be pursuing different activities. So to have a, a balance of being in the body versus also doing things that are having fun doing, it's, it's, both are good and it's a balance. And what do you learn from the perception or being around children? Because you mentioned about coming back to the child state. What do you learn from them and conversations with them and just speaking with them? Yes, I have three grandkids, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a one that's almost five. And so it's been fun to watch them and interact with them as they grow up. And their worlds are different and similar to ours. So one way in which they're similar is that they have their own agenda. And when things get in the way of their own agenda, they become very unhappy very quickly. And we all have that in us, that we have certain goals of things that we're trying to do. And it's very easy for us to be unhappy, to be critical of a situation, either of ourselves, of others, or of just a physical situation that we're in. So we have this habit of complaining. So I see that in children, right? As, as soon as something's not going exactly the way they want, or, and even if it is going the way they want, there's always something to complain about. So I see that in children and that continues into adulthood. And that's, I think that's one of the things that we face in meditation is letting go of our complaints. Part of that is letting go. What's interesting to me is that is there in childhood. I mean, in fact, one of the first things you do when you're born is you cry. <laughs> you come out and you start crying, right? So we're born and initially that's about the only way we can communicate is to complain by crying. But then there's the openness to new experiences. In some sense, kids don't have words early on. So they're just seeing without a filter of words. And, and I even have memories myself as a young child of just the wonder. I remember walking to kindergarten 
and seeing this bush with all sorts of flowers on it and all these monarch butterflies on it. And I was completely trying. Here I was five years old. I was looking at magic and I knew I was looking at magic. And I stayed there so long that I was late to kindergarten. And I learned that I got in trouble for that. But so taking time to enjoy the magic, I learned early on was something that would get me in trouble. And so that's our growing up and, and becoming adults and so forth. We often learn to not give time to the magic because there is no time for it. You need to get on to the next thing. So I see to myself, so in my grandchildren, that they can see things and love those things without sometimes the veil of concepts that adults have. I see it, I name it, I think I know everything about it and I don't pay any more attention to it. But if I can look at that tree, look at that tree trunk, or look at that plant and let go of all thoughts, literally don't name it, don't bring up all the stuff I've learned about it, its genus and species and whatever it might be that I, all the stuff, if I can just let go of all that and just be with the plant in silence for a couple of minutes, something happens. It, there's a, a deeper, the, the perceptions become more vivid. The connections there, the, you experience some kind of connections that it's more alive. It's not as dead as when you're just seeing things and labeling them and moving on. So I see children more open in that way. Um, not thinking that they're not so tied to getting onto the next thing that they can't, enjoy this moment. So part of it is that they're more able to be in the, perhaps we learn not to be in the moment as I learned with the butterflies, instead of being in the moment, I needed to, to move on and get off to my class because I had to get there at a certain time. And so there's this balance. And of course we have to function in, in life. So the, the issue is then a, one of a balance. How do we enjoy the mystery that's all around us? That it becomes unveiled as soon as we let go of concepts and look without thinking, just be with what is be present with what it is without any conceptualization of it. And on the one hand, and then do what we need to do to function, get our jobs, take care of cooking and groceries and family and whatever our job might be. So that's the wonderful balance that we have to strike up. So children have the advantage of not having a lot of responsibilities and they can be more open to just being without doing uh, in the present. But of course, that the other thing I also see is that um, it's very difficult with both parents having to work a lot. You know, it's Children then get left with television and other things as babysitters. And so that really accelerates the process of, of no longer just being, but being absorbed in things instead of just being with nature, for example. Definitely. The freedom to have the sound of something without the sense of it or just this flow. No, there's a place for no meaning as well. It can change from day to day. That's the beauty yes. and the timelessness of childhood. Yes, I agree. Yes. Also building on what we're talking about with the body, I always come back to thinking about how the stomach has the second highest number of neurons in, of any organ, that the body at different stages of development and then at different stages of health influences consciousness so much. I don't think there's a contradiction between the idea of consciousness being separate from the body and the body influencing consciousness. Yeah, so there are neurons throughout our body, right? That's the reason why you can feel your hands and your feet and so forth. There, there are neurons that innervate all aspects of your body, except you don't have any feelings in your brain per se of that type. So that's why surgeons can actually do surgery on the brain while the person is alert. There are pain neurons in the dura and so forth you know, around the brain, but not in the brain itself. So the body is an interesting thing. It's from the point of view that space and time are not fundamental, then no physical object is fundamental. So consciousness 
if, if we take consciousness to be fundamental, then the body itself, since it's, the body is an object in space and time, the body is not fundamental, which is really interesting. The body is like your avatar. So if you're in a virtual reality game, you put on a headset. If it's an immersive game where it's a first person immersion kind of game, then you'll have an avatar where you can see your body and you can see your hand driving a steering wheel or holding a gun, whatever it is that the game is about. And, and so that's your avatar. And that avatar is your body in the game. But the body that you're seeing in the game does not contain your consciousness. It's your consciousness that's creating the game and the body. So that avatar in the virtual reality game is just an experience in your consciousness. And your consciousness is not a little thing inside that avatar. So in virtual reality, it's very clear that we can see, of course, the avatar is just an avatar. It's just an icon. My consciousness is not in that icon. It might feel like my consciousness is in that icon and wherever the icon, wherever my avatar goes, my consciousness goes in that game. But it's obvious that's just an illusion. And in fact, the entire game that I'm perceiving is an experience. And as soon as I take the headset off, that experience is gone. I'm no longer inside that avatar. It, you know, I'm, I'm outside. So that means I was never myself inside the avatar, except as a convenient delusion. I'm saying the same thing is true of our bodies right now. Space and time are not fundamental. So space, time, and its objects are not fundamental. And so my body in space, time is an avatar. But that being said, it does seem that the body, the experience of the body seems to be an important connection to our nature as consciousness. And so that spiritual traditions that suggest that you, you know, spend time in silence and paying attention more and more deeply to all the aspects of your body. So your body as a physical object isn't you, but your body as an experience, like with your eyes closed and just feeling from inside the aliveness of your body, that's somehow maybe giving you a deeper contact with your true nature as consciousness. So that's why the body is sort of complicated here. It, as an object in space and time, no, it's merely a construct. It's, it's not fundamental, just like the avatar in VR. Nevertheless, there's another way in which the body is an interface. It's a portal through our space-time. So space and time isn't the reality, but it's, it's an interface that consciousness uses to interact with other consciousnesses. And so, for example, right now, I can see, Mia, I can see your face via Zoom. So all I'm seeing is a few pixels on a Zoom screen, right? that's an interface. Those pixels are a portal to what you're thinking. I can see if you're interested or if you disagree or if you agree. So I'm getting some access through a space-time interface and space-time objects, namely my, my laptop and the pixels. So here are these space-time objects as an interface that's giving my consciousness a portal to your consciousness. And of course, it's fallible. I could misinterpret you or you could be trying to fool me. I mean, so it's not infallible, but it's a genuine portal. And it's in that sense that I say that, yeah, my body is just my body, but it's part of this space-time interface. And when I pay attention to let go of my thoughts and enter my body more and more fully, somehow I've got to a deeper aspect of my consciousness. And I don't understand that yet, but, but it's an interesting direction that I want to pursue. And we can, by the way, we can pursue this mathematically, right? I'm working with my colleagues on space and time as a mathematically precise interface between consciousnesses. And I'm actually working with my colleagues. I'll be working with my, one of my colleagues this afternoon a little bit on mathematical models of consciousness that show how space and time arise as a user interface precisely. We're trying to get space and time 
to arise, giving us quantum field theory and gravity and the whole bit. But as a user interface that conscious, some conscious agents use to interact with other conscious agents. So I think we have a, a shot at beginning to understand this notion of a portal that, as I said, the pixels on the screen are portal to your consciousness. And if I were there in person, my direct visual experience of your face would itself be a portal to your consciousness. And my face, as you perceive it, would be a portal into my consciousness. So physical objects in space and time serve as portals between conscious agents. And my body, when I enter it and experience it, a somatosensory kind of experience, like feeling it from within, that somehow is also a portal into consciousness. And that I think I want to explore. I think science can explore and we should explore it. Of course, knowing full well that any scientific theory will always just be scratching the surface. Yeah. So speaking of portals, I think that there would be, and I know you worked at MIT and we had conversations with a dance company who explored collective consciousness with the MIT Robotics Lab. And I think that there are people who are fully nested in themselves as dancers or musicians and so into sound, that's how they exist that they would feel that their consciousness is their body. That's where they are most fully alive. But it's very interesting the, how we inhabit our different fields, our, our different ways of communicating our true selves. So several things come out of what you expressed there is I thought about what consciousness would be in outer space or what we would be if we lost our memories. What happens to people with amnesia? What happens when we lose the story of self? What remains? Are we still ourselves? So... The, the brain has two hemispheres, a left and a right. And the two are coupled together by a, a band of fibers called the corpus callosum, 225 million axons. And it turns out that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere have different personalities. And if you cut the corpus callosum, you can actually separate the consciousnesses. And the left hemisphere then, sometimes, for example, in one patient, the left hemisphere believed in God and the right hemisphere was an atheist. So they were in, in entirely, entirely different. And they have different goals in life and so forth. So there's this connection between the hemispheres and different kinds of consciousness. And the two hemispheres, when they're separated, seem to have different contents of consciousness. So different personalities, but also different contents of consciousness. So the left hemisphere could be aware of the word key and the right hemisphere aware of the word ring. And nobody's aware of both. That is quite fascinating. So there is this connection between brains, neurons, and consciousness. But it's not a reductive one. So it's not that the left hemisphere creates consciousness, but rather it's a symbol that we use to describe that. So if you have damage to a hemisphere, you can lose specific things. So if you have damage, say, to your left hemisphere, you have damage to your left hemisphere in area V4, then you can lose all color experience in the right visual field. The right visual field just looks like shades of gray. Or if you take a magnet and inhibit the left area V4, then you will also again lose color experience in the right visual field. When you let go of the magnet and you take it away, then color comes back. So yes, there is this deep correlation between conscious experiences and activity in the various hemispheres, but that doesn't entail that the brain itself causes the experiences. So as you think about the future and education and the challenges we face, what life lessons have been important for you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? So I would say life is not about your success, how much you get, you know, fame, fortune, house, car, these are, these are fine things to do. The real success in life is finding out who you are, learning to explore life and to accept 
everything that comes your way without complaint. Of course, we can change things as we need to, but in the moment to really be with what is as it is, to accept what is, and learning to actually be in the moment without thought. I would say one of the most important things I'm, I'm learning right now is this balance between conceptual thought on the one hand, thinking, and stepping out of thought altogether and just being present in silence and going back and forth. When I'm present to my environment in silence, then I'm in touch with a deeper intelligence that is not separate from me. It is me. But when I, and then I can bring that back into my thinking. But most of our thoughts, if we're not watching our thoughts, most of our thoughts are actually complaints and judgments and they're dysfunctional. Most of our thinking is automatic and dysfunctional. So learning to let go, to don't believe your thoughts, watch your feelings. This is really what life I think is about. Learning to not believe your thoughts, watch your thoughts, see their patterns and learn that you are not at the whim and beck and call of your thoughts. You can watch your thoughts and you can choose to let go of thoughts and just be present and let go of the complaints. And that then opens up a level of creativity that's surprising. It, it could be in dance, it could be in science, it could be in music or art, but wherever you have creative expression, letting go of thought and having this balance between thinking and no thinking, going into complete silence and then pulling ideas back for your art, your science, your dance, whatever it might be, is really the dance of life. And, that, and so learning that is really... And maybe what, if, if I could say one thing that life was about, it's about that. It's because once you do it that way, once you aren't addicted to thought or believe your thoughts, all of a sudden your judgments of other people go away because you don't believe them anymore. And all of a sudden the barriers between you and other people go away and you discover that's the, the basis of love. So often our thoughts are the things that we're using to condemn ourselves and condemn others and to put, put up barriers. As we learn to just be able to watch our thoughts and not believe them, then all of a sudden we don't necessarily have to believe all the negative things that automatically come up about other people. And all of a sudden that barrier that is just automatically coming up in our complaints goes away and, and we can just be with other people without preconceptions. I think that's a good title for a book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this dance of life. And so thank you for your life in pursuit of meaning and also letting go of meaning. It's a very important message. Thank you, Donald Hoffman, for inviting us to question the nature of truth and the endless exploration of shared possibilities, your insights into consciousness, perception, creativity, intuition, the nature of time, space, the sacred and evolution. By helping us understand our minds and its limitations, we can lead lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Eric Rosen with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Eric Rosen. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.